The empty block attack is one where a majority of mining power would be directed at mining only empty blocks and rejecting non-empty blocks. These miners would essentially execute a soft fork where all non-empty blocks would be rejected. Given that they have a majority of hashing power on the network, so the thinking goes, they will eventually get the longer chain even if other miners were to mine non-empty blocks. If only empty blocks are being mined, all activity on the network would stop. And so, the thinking goes, Bitcoin would be killed. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. Round and round we go. Another bull market. Another resurgence of the same old FUD. Uh, Jimmy Song has a great article today debunking the empty block attack, which is making its rounds again in the Bitcoin critosphere. Uh, and he does a great job smashing it in a pretty succinct article. Um, so we will get into it in just a second. Our lovely sponsors before we d dive in. The open source secure hardware wallet for the people who love their keys and keep them safe in their possession rather than leaving them in the dirty, dirty hands of some custodian uh, holding an IOU. The Bitbox O2 hardware wallet from Shift Crypto. And of course... Our other sponsor, the automatic daily, weekly, monthly, however you like it, sat stacking savings plan with swanbitcoin.com slash guy. That is my referral link, and it gets you some free sats after you start your plan. They have the lowest auto DCA fees in the biz and automatic withdrawals to your Bitbox hardware wallet. Swan wants you to hold your own keys, will automatically send you your Bitcoin, and they will even pay the fee for you. Check them both out at guyswan.com. With that, let's jump into today's really fun article, and it's titled Debunking the Empty Block Attack by Jimmy Song. It's amazing how much effort critics expend on ways in which Bitcoin could not work. Few people ask about the vulnerabilities of the U.S. dollar, for instance, which has a far greater impact globally, yet in order to FUD Bitcoin, the same, quote, concerns are brought up again and again as if they were novel to warn people away from Bitcoin. The latest salvo against Bitcoin is the idea of the empty block attack, something made popular by Michael in his debate with Pomp. To be clear, I already wrote about mining centralization scenarios, which covers the empty block attack, three years ago. But as we've seen with Bitcoin critics, their forte seems to be in bringing up concerns that were addressed long ago as if they're new during each bull cycle. Honestly, I'm pretty sick of the FUD and having to explain the same things over and over again. But given that there's a good number of people coming into the space, I'm going to refute this specific attack in this article. What is the empty block attack? The empty block attack is one where a majority of mining power would be directed at mining only empty blocks and rejecting non-empty blocks. These miners would essentially execute a soft fork where all non-empty blocks would be rejected. Given that they have a majority of hashing power on the network, so the thinking goes, they will eventually get the longer chain, even if other miners were to mine non-empty blocks. If only empty blocks are being mined, all activity on the network would stop. And so, the thinking goes, Bitcoin would be killed. Who would execute such an attack? The usual villain in this scenario is China, who apparently has a majority of hashing power within its borders. The thinking goes that they would seize control of the hash power one way or the other and execute this attack on the network. This is not a bad first-order approximation of what would happen, but the problem with this scenario is that the Bitcoin critics don't believe that there would be any resistance whatsoever. 
This is about as naive as thinking that a nuclear strike on a populated city wouldn't provoke some sort of response. So let's take a look at some of the countermeasures that the Bitcoin network can perform. There are two scenarios for an empty block attack, direct and indirect. The direct one is acquiring 51% of the mining equipment and executing the attack. The indirect one is compelling pools to mine only empty blocks. Let's take the more realistic second scenario first. Pool-based majority is a non-starter. Most mining power is gathered into pools, and each pool operator competes with other pool operators for the business of mining equipment owners. If China were to somehow be able to take control of these pools and execute this attack, most mining equipment owners would simply leave. Why? Because the pool mining empty blocks will generate less revenue than a pool mining normal blocks. Currently, the block subsidy is 6.25 Bitcoin and fees are around 0.75 Bitcoin. Using a pool outside of China, such as Slush Pool, would give them 11% more revenue. In other words, they would have to give up 11% of revenue on a thin margin business, a non-starter. The pools would thus have to subsidize the mining equipment owners by at least 11%. But if they are being subsidized, equipment owners will know that they're part of an empty block attack, in which case there will be significant premium for their loyalty. The pool would have to give them much more than the 11% revenue that they're losing. The pool also has no easy way to compensate these miners with Bitcoin with empty blocks, which don't allow transfer of Bitcoin. The pool, by executing an empty block attack, is essentially hoping to obsolete the very businesses that these mining equipment owners created. The premium given to these mining equipment owners would have to cover not just the opportunity cost of mining in an empty block pool, but the value that they place on their entire businesses. In other words, it's not going to be cheap. They're going to have to spend at least the amount of money that covers the value of all these businesses and probably significantly more than that. Direct mining equipment acquisition is really hard. The other scenario is direct acquisition of the mining equipment. This again is not a cheap scenario. There are two ways a government can get their hands on mining equipment, either seizing it or producing it themselves. How would a government go about seizing the mining equipment? One major feature of mining equipment is that they are portable, and it's well known that this equipment is moved in bulk all the time to chase the cheapest sources of electricity. How would the government even know where they are? They would have to require registration and movement of the mining equipment and require a vast bureaucracy just to keep track. In addition, there's the problem of seizing such valuable property from their owners without arousing suspicion. This is very difficult as the mining equipment is extremely valuable, especially in an empty versus normal block war. As we'll see, equipment that's mining normal blocks in the minority will get a significant amount of fees. Thus, in such a war, every mining equipment owner will want to sell their equipment abroad and smuggle it out as quickly as possible. Thus, the operation can't just be a slow and steady seizure of one mining facility after another. They all have to be seized at once and with significant force. Anyone that has even a hint of what's coming will get their equipment out of the country as quickly as possible. Even something like a prelude, like having to register mining equipment with the government would likely cause a mass exodus of all but the most unprofitable pieces of mining equipment. Thus, this operation requires a lot of manpower, lots of secrecy, and lots of coordination probably requiring the military and a lot of violence. How about buying the equipment from the market? A huge government buyer is going to add a significant demand to the mining equipment market. As prices go up, so do profit margins, bringing a lot more manufacturers into the market. Such a government would thus have to outrun the natural market dynamics of supply increasing with demand, and gather not just the majority of worldwide mining equipment at one particular moment in time, but forever going forward. If at any time they stop having the majority of the hash power for any significant amount of time, 
their empty block attack is lost. How about manufacturing the equipment themselves? Manufacturing it themselves would be similarly hard as they would have to compete along the entire supply chain of parts that are needed to manufacture such equipment. They would increase the profit of these parts, making it more profitable and creating more supply, ultimately creating more mining equipment manufacturers that will compete with them. In other words, they would have to outrun the free market process for equipment manufacture, and that will not only require a lot of money, but a lot of technical and business competence, which governments typically don't have. What happens if a country has majority hash rate? But let's leave aside this concern and give the Bitcoin critics the advantage here. Suppose a country somehow manages to get 51% of the mining hash power, whether through manufacturing it themselves, buying, or seizing it on the market. What would happen then? They would start the empty block attack to halt the entire network. What would the rest of the network do? They would likely be upset that only empty blocks are being mined and would see normal blocks get wiped out. The rest of the network would rightfully see the empty blocks as an attack on the network, identify it as such, and not accept such blocks. This is very easy on any full node implementation. There's an RPC command called invalidate block, which essentially says do not accept this block or any block that builds on top of it. The entire branch that the nation state attacker worked so hard to create can be invalidated by any node with that single command. This would have to be done by each individual node, but given that there's literally no transactions being processed on the empty blockchain, node operators would be incentivized to run it. For the minority of the hash power that's getting their blocks overridden by the empty blocks, they would clearly want to run invalidate block, as otherwise they would make no money. From a game theory perspective, a large portion of the network is economically incentivized to enter a new minority consensus. In other words, a decentralized subset will form against the clearly centralized majority because of economic incentives. Empty versus normal chain war. At this point, Bitcoin would fork one empty blockchain and one normal blockchain. The normal one would have transactions but less hashing power, and so would run slower. The empty one would have no transactions but more hashing power, so would run faster. They would be separate chains, and every economically significant node would follow the normal blockchain, as it's the only one that's actually processing transactions. Not only that, but because of the backlog of transactions due to reduced hashing power, fees would go up, making mining on this chain significantly more profitable. As a result, there will be economic incentive for more hashing power to come on the minority side. This may include new equipment being manufactured, old equipment coming online, and even defections, stolen or smuggled, from the majority side. In the meantime, the majority side would have to keep a majority through the new equipment manufacturer, old equipment usage, and defections on the minority side to continue their attack. If at any point the normal blockchain has more proof of work than the empty one, the empty blockchain would be wiped out and the attack essentially thwarted. But even if the normal blockchain has less hashing power, it will chug along happily while the empty blockchain will continue adding blocks uselessly. No one will be able to buy or sell on the empty chain, as there's no way to send or receive from any exchange. Such a chain will not affect what everyone else will consider the real Bitcoin, and few are going to pay it much attention. Conclusion Given all of these realities, a nation-state would have to weigh out these scenarios and determine if it's worth it. Even with unlimited money, which they don't have, and majority control of new mining equipment manufacturing worldwide, which is highly unlikely, the probability of failure, that of a decentralized minority forming, is really high. 
Make no mistake, a failure of this magnitude would be a massive black eye to their reputation and prestige at home and abroad. This is the sort of humiliation that government officials avoid at all costs. That said, I personally would welcome such an attack, as I think it would be great for Bitcoin. Not only would we test ourselves against a nation-state enemy, but an authoritarian government that does this is likely to legitimize Bitcoin significantly to its enemies, and after Bitcoin wins, to themselves. Jimmy does a pretty great job here of just kind of smashing this one, uh, but I still want to add some thoughts to this in Guy's take, so let's take a quick break and we will jump back in. You know who wouldn't have to worry about an empty block attack? Everybody holding their own keys on a secure hardware wallet, like the Bitbox O2. You could just sit back and watch the fireworks with your keys safely in your own possession and your transactions buried deep in the chain. Because you didn't wait for something bad to happen. You sent your coins to the Bitbox O2 hardware wallet right away because you knew it was the safe, responsible place to store your keys. You chose an open source, easy to use hardware wallet, Swiss made with security as the top concern. So while everybody else is fighting over the chain tip, you just wait for the smoke to clear with your keys safely in your own hands. Guy Swan with two N's dot com slash bitbox. And also check out their store for other things like the tamper evident bags, the crypto steel backups, and other tools for security and reliability of your Bitcoin savings. GuySwan.com slash bitbox. So there is a lot wrong with this perceived attack vector. Um, and it's kind of funny, and Jimmy points this out in the article, that literally every single bull market, these same arguments are brought up again and again. And it's not even, there's not even new information presented, right? It is genuinely the same argument regurgitated as if it has been newly discovered. And despite the fact that Bitcoin is, you know, a thousand times as uh, more secure as it was the last time we went through all of this, this time, this time they found the thing that will kill Bitcoin. Now, I'm not saying we should ever stop talking about uh, how to kill Bitcoin. I think that's a critical part of this entire thing. But to hear the exact same arguments regurgitated is a little bit exhausting, particularly when they're not even like these aren't even the big things. Like, in my opinion, the empty block attack is a pretty neutered attack just in a general sense. Like, that's not killing Bitcoin. That's just making, like, a really, really big headache for as long as you can burn tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in resources. But this is not at all a Bitcoin death scenario, in my opinion, even if successful. But I think a big part of the misunderstanding of the inability to see how difficult this attack would actually be it's the fact that people think that they can hold some sort of relevant image of what the entire Bitcoin mine, mining industry looks like in their heads. That there's like these three guys in China, and there's the one guy in the US, there's the one guy in Russia, and a few friends got together in a couple other countries and they're working together. And then if the government gets mad, they're just gonna like call these, they're just gonna like look up like the phone number and like address of these people, and they're gonna go knock on their doors, and the gig is up. People really, really love to oversimplify massive, complex industries or institutions into some few, a few bullet points that are mostly useless, but really easy to imagine or picture in your head. But the reality is the mining industry is absolutely massive. And it comes in about a thousand different forms. And there's no map where you can just go and pinpoint all the miners and get their names and addresses and call them up on the phone. This is a pretty huge first step disconnect or misunderstanding. It's kind of similar to the Dunbar's number problem, right? Um, uh, just in general, humans can only hold about seven 
things in their head at one time before you have to shortcut and you start seeing a group of things rather than the individual things. Like if you want to imagine 20, 20, 20 apples in your head, you can't actually see all 20 apples. You just imagine a group and you think of the vague idea of what 20 is. But then in relation to Dunbar's number, when we're talking about a market of 20 people or a set of 20 people uh, and the relationships and connections, even thinking of things in a group sense and how they relate to each, each other, we max out between 100 and 200 connections or 200 different units or, or nodes in a network, people in a group, in order to make any sense of the exponential number of connections and relationships that that group uh, has within it. And even then, even at that stage, changes come fast enough to make it impossible to keep up with. Now start thinking about an industry where profitability has extremely thin margins, where there's constantly new chips and uh, manufacturing and new devices and new methodologies, and they show up every three to six months. There's new entrance into the space. There is literally no barrier to entry in the sense that... Um, like all you have to do is turn a machine on. You don't have to register somewhere. You don't have to be in some specific location or jurisdiction. All you need to do is have power and a machine and you're good to go. And th this is breaking into new energy sources every week. There are tens of thousands of public players in the game and then a huge subset of private players because again, it's a progressless product being provided. The service has nothing to do. You don't have to talk to customers to provide the service of mining for Bitcoin. No one even has to know that you exist for you to provide and get paid for that service. And then combine that with the diehard, extremely defensive and responsive ecosystem that's used to moving at a very, very rapid pace and making quick changes to new technology and new, um, new uh, developments and code and what have you. And you've got something that literally no one can reasonably relate to. That without such a gross level of oversimplification, that any sort of concrete judgment or attempt at extrapolating what would happen is really largely useless. There is no image of the Bitcoin mining industry that just encompasses the whole thing. So with that, just as a frame of reference or as some context, let's, let's just jump in. I think the funniest thing that Jimmy brings up in this and, um, uh, is, and has a pretty good analogy to it as well, um, that critics completely gloss over, is assuming that Bitcoiners, Bitcoiners in the network will just have no response. That, um, and this was kind of akin to you know, big blockers back in the day saying that, uh, when they boasted they were going to have 80% of the hash power and that they were going to do this exact attack. They were going to mine empty blocks and attack the, quote, legacy chain and that they would easily kill it and there was nothing we could do. Uh, the amount of rage that they would have when I'd just be like, okay, go ahead. <laughs> Always provided some rather fun entertainment. They hated the idea that they could tell us that we were doomed and yet the UASF bros just weren't worried um, and would happily let them execute these so-called attacks that were certain to defeat Bitcoin. Um, but uh, just, you know, like, and the idea that there won't be a response, that there won't be movement, that, um, you know, miners who, you know, have their remote kill switches won't log in and shut their machines off, that... None of these things are password protected. Nobody will uh, get wind of, you know, some national registration and potentially get scared or get cold feet and pick up and move out of the country. Like, just nothing will move. That it is just this static. Like, not only is it not what it was last week, the whole ecosystem and industry moves so fast, but that someone could attack, that an entire jurisdiction, a world superpower could attack the network and that everybody would just kind of sit with their thumbs in their asses. Jimmy has a pretty good analogy, is that it's kind of comparing this, it's kind of suggesting you could drop a nuclear bomb on a city 
and nobody would do anything. There would just be no response. It would just be like, ah, well, that's a bummer, and just throw their hands up. Sorry, but Bitcoiners have been through some shit over the years, and as someone who has been around for a while, I gotta say, an empty block attack does not even sound all that threatening to me. In fact, with the thousands of ways that Bitcoiners in the ecosystem would obviously respond, the hilarious thing is that really all Bitcoiners have to do is wait, in a sense. You know, it's ultimately a game of chicken, where one side is burning astronomical amounts of resources to keep their engine running, and the risk of defection is incredibly high, and, you know, the, the toxic full-node plebs uh, can just wait it out, and it doesn't really cost them anything. Remember, the most important thing about a 51% attack is that it does not give them the ability to just walk through Bitcoin's history and edit as they see fit. It does not give them the ability to change the consensus rules or create in, uh, invalid transactions or produce invalid blocks in any way. It doesn't give them any of that. All they can do, the best that they can do, is attempt to orphan the blocks of the other 49% so that they are the only ones producing on the chain. And we'll get to why that's largely pointless uh, just straight out the gate, but there's a whole lot of reasons why it's stupid before we even get there. Now, to not just undermine the fact that this is a form of centralization that isn't good, right? It's not good that all that, that a, um, a very likely a majority of the mining power is under a single jurisdiction. That is a problem. Uh, and, you know, you know, look in Bitcoin's history and we've actually had more than 51% of the mining power in a single mining pool. And that was a problem. You know, it's not exactly like this is good news or that I'm just dismissing it outright that this is a problem that we want to be fixed. There are a various uh, handful of ways in which Bitcoin has centralization vulnerabilities that we would like fixed, that we are trying to fix, that are important to bring attention to, um, but it is important to, very, to understand them in the context of exactly why they are a problem and exactly how big of a problem they are. Now, so it is very possible it is very possible and likely that China does actually have a majority of the hash power in their jurisdiction. But this is an estimate, and it is not actually known. This is based on IP address. The, the best study um, that I think a lot of this is based off of is a Cambridge study that pulled geographic data collected uh, from Bitcoin mining. It's actually just aggregate data from three of the major mining pools. And it's already about a year old, so it could very easily be outdated at this point. And then at the same time, there are huge fluctuations in seasonal uh, geography of Bitcoin mining. A lot of that actually has to do with China's wet and dry season because there's so much renewable and hydroelectric power that's very, very cheap during the wet season in uh, areas like uh, in like the Xinjiang and uh, Sichuan uh, provinces. But this does not account for, this, again, this is IP address data. So this does not account for anybody mining over a VPN, anyone mining over Tor. And the mining pools themselves that they pulled this data from were only about a third of the network hash rate. So they're, they're taking a third of the hash rate and then extrapolating out it out over the entire Bitcoin network. So this is a guess on top of a guess on top of uh, potentially reliable information. This is not at all a situation where we have a list of miners and their exact hash rate and how many machines they have uh, uh, plugged in and where they are and you know we've talked to them personally on the phone. Like this is this is very very difficult to aggregate information and this is one of the best sources we have on it. And that is the level of guesswork that went into it. A full 30% of the mining that is done on Bitcoin, a full third, 
all, roughly as much as we have in actual data that could potentially be geographically pinpointed is just listed as unknown. We don't, we have no idea where it comes from or who it is. So all of this should be taken in the context that there's a pretty wide margin of error here. It could be more hash power in China or less hash power, and it's a pretty significant uh, error rate that we could be dealing with. Again, with that said, it probably is true that there's a majority of the hash power within China because China's freaking huge, and also just there is an a huge abundance of cheap hydroelectric and in, uh, renewable power within China. So, and obviously we know that there are very popular re regions that miners descend upon, even though that this, you know, does tend to migrate in and out very quickly as energy dries up uh, with the ending of the wet season. But still, I don't really refute that idea. It's just really important to remember that we don't actually know. But this brings up another point that Jimmy makes in the article is that mining, despite being such an industrialized practice, is actually surprisingly mobile. Um, machines migrate to better energy sources very, very quickly. And even large institutions and farms tend to upgrade or migrate out. They're very, very serious about profitability and if they are losing money there is no reason to have those things on or to keep them where they are if the energy is no longer at the needed cost in order to run those the, uh, run the machines i mean just look at something like upstream data and the handful of companies that are doing the the natural gas capping and reuse for bitcoin mining is that they're actually shipping out these little containers with built-in hardware and natural gas generators, which is such a cool example of just how fast a lot of these things can be deployed. I asked Barber actually in private one time, and unfortunately going back through it, I actually couldn't find the conversation. I wanted to confirm exactly what he said, um, but uh, uh, basically he said that, because I asked him, how long does it take to get these things set up? And he, he said something like, it's just like a day or two. It's freakishly similar to just having somebody come out and set up like satellite television service um, with just bulkier equipment. And if and these are huge upfront investments, right? The sunk cost in mining equipment and investing in the Bitcoin security ecosystem is pretty massive. These miners are not cheap. And if they got wind... The idea that China could do this on such a massive scale in all of the provinces and in, in all of the minor jurisdictions all across the country, and as Jimmy says, the, the just huge amount of violence that would have to be orchestrated all in sync for some miners to not just pick up and leave or get scared and uh, you know paranoid about what might be coming that this could happen with no rumors leaking out, that none of their political friends said anything, none of the police told their cousins or sisters or anything, just nothing, just dead silence, perfect sync across the entire country, and somehow they directly confiscated all of these miners in all of these different locations when we really don't even know where they all are. That's a pretty serious stretch, in my opinion. I won't say it's not possible, but it seems incredibly unlikely. But the pool-based attack, let's start with where Jimmy starts, actually, before we kind of get into that a little bit further. But the pool-based attack is just ridiculous. Um, and this one is brought up all the time, that there's like three pools or four pools or whatever that are majority of the hash rate together and that they're based out of China. A mining pool is a website. It is a website. It is just people logging into a website. It is like saying that if somebody took over your Facebook account and started spamming your friends with fake messages, that you would have no other means to message them on Telegram, or Discord, or Twitter, 
or the phone and be like, yo, man, somebody hacked my account. Please ignore this person. And in fact, the Facebook problem is actually a lot worse than the mining pool problem because as soon as you log out of the mining pool yourself, they can't do anything. They can't, they can't use your mining equipment while you're not there, whereas somebody can actually hack your Facebook account and just keep sending messages. If all you had to do was log out of Facebook and the messages stopped, you just go to a different website. You just go to a different website and log into a different pool. We have seen this happen many, many times in Bitcoin's history. It moves very, very quickly. Uh, ghash.io that had over 51, I think they peaked at like 53 or 54% of the entire Bitcoin hash rate back when Bitcoin was really young and the industry was adding new equipment so freaking fast that... Um, and, and the hash rate was increasing so fast that it could easily, very easily over a couple of months get concentrated in one place. And so you were seeing shifts all over the place. Um, but ghash.io, um, like, you know, everybody attacked them and they were like, we were just, we we're just winning, you know, like we were just good at running a pool and we offer good rates. So people logged into us, you know, and they kind of got nervous. They're like, we're sorry, we're not attacking the network. We have no intention of doing that. Obviously, this is our investment. And they just said, well, we're just going to um, manually uh, limit this at uh, like 45 or 40% or something. This is, like, this is like in the low 40s, I think they said. Like if they ever get that high uh, of a hash rate related to relative to the entire Bitcoin network that they would just cap people logging in. Um, but honestly, they really didn't need to because everybody got spooked and tons of people just left. In fact, ghash.io pretty much died not too long after that. Um, and it was for various reasons, but people just logged out in mass. They just were like leaving it because of what a scare it appeared to be all over social media and everything. And people really did freak out that 51% was basically running through a single computer. But again, not hard. It'd probably be kind of a pain for a couple of hours but they'd have zero control over the actual miners. What they control is the server that those miners are logging into. That is it. The pool-based attack fails out the gate and would actually only serve to make whatever country that attempted it look like utter morons. You know, if they tried a pool-based attack and that this was like a very seriously orchestrated and like attempt to literally kill Bitcoin, I would actually be pretty disappointed because it would indicate that Bitcoin can't even find a competent adversary in a world, like a government superpower. And I'd worry that we'd get stagnant if this was the best that they could conjure up. You know, Bitcoin is an anti-fragile system, so it responds and gets better specifically because of stressors. It gets stronger in response to them. So it needs to be attacked every once in a while and survive in order for it to grow and get stronger and repair exactly the things or heal and uh, bolster exactly the sorts of things that need to be bolstered. But the mining pool, trying to do this with a mining pool takeover is a very neutered strategy, in my opinion. And, you know, I guess I'll point this out, too, just because people keep saying it to me on Twitter. Um, and uh, Jimmy brings this up as well, is the compensation. They said, oh, well, they'll keep people on the pool. But even though even though the you know, they'll lose all of the fees, which are like, you know, 11 to 15 percent vary, you know, it varies um, of the uh, uh, mining reward. Oh, well, said country will just compensate them for that loss and they'll stay they'll stay in the pool um jimmy's absolutely spot on with this the profit margin of the fees is not at all what needs to be subsidized to keep people on board with this you know three critical points that a miner is going to think about and how they are going to judge whether or not whether or not they're going to attack their own investment it's so stupid but anyway Three points. So a lot of these miners are not mass like KYC'd or officially registered. Like, again, most of these are just usernames and passwords. 
logging into a pooled website. Next is that these miners have made an explicit and exclusive investment into the Bitcoin ecosystem. And it cannot be used for anything else except securing Bitcoin. And ASIC is exclusively a tool for the Bitcoin ecosystem, a SHA-256 ASIC. You cannot plug it into your, you know, your editing machine and render uh, footage with it. You can't do anything else with it but mine Bitcoin. The entire investment is there to support Bitcoin. Third, they get paid in Bitcoin. They do not sign up with their PayPal accounts. They do not set up direct deposits from the Chinese mining pool. All payouts are in BTC. So the idea that you are going to keep miners logged into a pool and attacking the very Bitcoin network because China is going to pay them the 11% or so lost margin uh, of their, or their lost uh, portion of their revenue when their, their profit might even be 5% or less. And they will knowingly attack Bitcoin, their very investment with an empty block attack. They will continue using this mining pool that is the source of the attack that they are now participating in. And that they will also sign up with direct deposit with the Chinese central bank or whatever the hell it is to cover the difference and continue producing blocks that make it make it impossible for them to get the other 89% of their revenue because it requires a Bitcoin transaction to get through and they are specifically attacking Bitcoin so that transactions cannot get through. This is, this is kind of like saying China is going to find all the renters in the country and forcibly remove the current renter and uh, pay the landlords instead the, the rent, but then they're going to put it inside the house. The, the property that the landlord owns and encourage the landlords to burn their own houses down with the money inside. But if they pay them enough money, if there's enough money sitting on the kitchen table in the house that they're about to set on fire, they'll say, okay, I guess I have no other option. They will literally destroy their own investment and their very means of getting paid when the entire thing needed to happen to mitigate the entire attack is to just go up to the top right of the page and hit log out. Just doesn't seem like the problem that the people I argue with on Twitter seem to want it to be. Now, direct hardware control is even more difficult. Again, we've established we don't know where it is. Sure, there are probably some very large mining farms that are relatively easy to find in some form or fashion, or they're a publicly traded business and they have a, you know, specific business location. That is certainly not the case for all of them. And they're very, very widely distributed, even as they are, you know, under a certain jurisdiction. You know, it's not as if this is one miner in China that has all of this mining power. There are tons of miners still, again, in every province in China. Now think about the manpower to run these miners. And understand, too, they have to run them in place. You know, like if China or whatever government it was, let's say the same things happen in the U.S., wherever, it doesn't really matter. They need an energy source to run these things. And if there is an en just an energy source that freaking huge... It's just sitting untapped somewhere that, that the government could just turn on whenever they wanted. Bitcoin miners would have already found it. So if they quote-unquote confiscate the miners, they have to go to it. They have to then take them to a place and set them up in which all of this energy, the equivalent energy production, exists. Which is, which is absurd. The whole reason the miners are where they are is because this is where the only large enough cheap enough sources of energy actually do exist. Which means that they have to actually run them in place in order to execute this attack. And this is after the whole full in-sync, perfectly secret, uh, you know, no leaking whatsoever, nationwide, all localities, violent police attack. 
So that happened first. Now they have all of the hardware under their control. And now they need massive amounts of manpower that knows how to run these things. It knows how to keep them working, knows how to execute this attack, and can replace all of the workers at all of these installations. Unless, of course, they are now hiring the workers who were running the Bitcoin security and now using them to run the Bitcoin attack. And the more and more they use that method, the higher and higher the risk of defection uh, becomes. But let's say all of this falls into place. There are no rumors. It's kept perfectly secret. They find all of the relevant miners that they need, and they go directly after the hardware. They fully control it. They have all of the manpower to keep these things running and properly execute the attack. They run all the hundreds or thousands of separate installations all in place where they already are so they don't have to move or set anything up new. And they're totally willing to burn the hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever it is in order to attack Bitcoin with these with empty blocks and orphan all of the blocks that are not empty and forego the increasing profit margin that uh, blocks, full blocks, would give. And of course, they have a large enough margin that if anybody else turned on miners or the new facilities set up in the US or Russia or anybody turning on their old S9s that aren't even profitable just to defend the network because there is tons of idle hardware out there that's just below the profit margin but may very well come online just to stick it to whoever thinks that they're going to attack Bitcoin. Again, assuming all of that is not an issue and that they have a large enough margin, they produce empty blocks. They orphan full blocks, and now Bitcoin is dead. Enter the RPC command invalidate block. Any full node operator or miner can just manually invalidate a block, which means that we could soft fork away from the attack. And for the miners that did so, they would be economically rewarded because they would be getting paid a higher return. While again, the attacker is burning through money like crazy and now can't even spend the reward that they mined because the minority consensus, the honest nodes and miners have forked away from every single mining reward that they have produced. Their best bet would be to try this again. But it would have already failed, and now everyone who has forked away, who has invalidated the obvious attack blocks, would be even faster and more prepared to do it a second time. So essentially, the nation-state would have to, to have to allow all of the full blocks in, start from scratch, give up all of their rewards and start attacking the correct chain or the chain that has full blocks again to put empty blocks on top of it and everybody who already invalidated their previous attack would be able to invalidate their new one much faster and much easier and now isn't even losing revenue to do so. And in fact, it's probably getting paid a premium because fees are going to be really, really high because blocks are going to be slow at, at, during this, this whole situation. Now again, it would be a huge headache. It would be awful. People would freak out. There would be a huge panic. People would scramble. Lots and lots of mining power would move. There would be calls of Bitcoin obituaries left and right. It would be the certain death of Bitcoin. The price would go up and down like crazy. Exchanges would have a, just a fit. And it would be a huge, painful task of coordination. But I have no doubt. Bitcoin would survive this. Bitcoin has dealt with, Bitcoin and Bitcoiners have dealt with plenty of awful Bitcoin price crashes and volatility and attacks and Mt. Gox uh, just getting obliterated with 90% of the liquidity in the market. And yet, here we are. So before we close this out, I love the way Jimmy actually closed this article out. Um, but uh, a quick thank you to the best Bitcoin automatic Bitcoin savings plan out there, 
swanbitcoin.com slash guy. And then my favorite open source secure hardware wallet, the Bitbox O2. Check them both out at guyswan.com. They are the sponsors of Bitcoin Audible and they make this show happen. But I want to end this before we hit uh, our Bitcoin resource with Jimmy's quote, just the last little paragraph of this piece. It says, that, that said, I personally would welcome such an attack as I think it would be great for Bitcoin. Not only would we test ourselves against a nation-state enemy, but an authoritarian government that does this is likely to legitimize Bitcoin significantly to its enemies and after Bitcoin wins, to themselves. I thought that was a great way to end this, and I agree, um, is that if this is the attack that nation-states take against Bitcoin, understand if Bitcoin, like, Bitcoin would survive this. I genuinely think Bitcoin would survive. And in the grand scheme, it would not be such a horrific attack to have to deal with. And I genuinely think the legitimacy that that would give to Bitcoin and the importance that political jurisdictions would see in being quote-unquote Bitcoin independent in the same way that they are energy independent and not reliant on some other nation would suddenly become a very important geopolitical strategy and uh, consideration in where they stand in relation to Bitcoin independence. And today's Bitcoin resource is none other than Jimmy Song's Programming Bitcoin. So I have a lot of great books and my two favorite for resources on how to make sense of Bitcoin, which I have not actually gone through this whole thing, so caveat there. Um, but it is, it is really wonderful for uh, understanding and particularly if you're like a developer and you want to get into this, programming Bitcoin is a really amazing resource. It will literally teach you how Bitcoin works completely under the hood and you'll be able to create your own, how to like program your own Bitcoin library from scratch. If that is your forte and that is how you wish to contribute to Bitcoin, you got to check out programming Bitcoin by Jimmy Song. And that way you'll know about the simple things like invalidate block that show us exactly how we could mitigate an attack just like this. Bitcoin survives because we know how it works and because we know how to defend it. So with as much as I may have dismissed, or it sounds like I may have dismissed it, never dismiss an attack against Bitcoin and keep learning everything you can about it so that when an attack like this comes, we know how to keep it alive. Because if Bitcoin survives, Bitcoin wins. And with that, this is Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, and until next time, everybody, take it easy. This has been a 111 production, and you are listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.